Hi, everyone. Welcome back once again, and thank you so much for joining us. Again, we hope everyone out there is continuing to stay safe, healthy, and happy. I'm Dave Giancola from the USGA, joined as always by my colleague and co-host, Mike Trosel. Mike, how are you today? Great to be here, Dave. Thanks. Good to be with you as well. And Mike and I are so pleased because today we are joined by renowned golf course architect Gil Hans, whose impressive resume would take about an hour to read front to back. But among other things, it includes building the Olympic golf course in Rio that we saw back in 2016, where Justin Rose hoisted the gold medal, as well as a recent restoration to the host of the upcoming 2020 U.S. Open in September, which of course is of interest to us at the USGA. That, of course, being wing foot golf club. So Gil, thanks again so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Now, I met Gil Hans, Dave, back in the early to mid-2000s. I just started caddying uh, a place right where I grew up at Boston Golf Club. I was in college. It's just south of the city. And on this particular day, all I knew that I had a guy's bag named Gil. And that's all I knew. I didn't know who designed the course that time. I'd just been there for a week or two. And over the first few holes, he was talking about shot values and slope gradients on green complexes and how a Redan hole design template works with the land formation. And I'm thinking, man, this guy is pretty knowledgeable. And the other caddy I'm with says, yeah, that's the guy who built and designed this course. That's Gil Hans. So that was my first exposure to Gil. And, and I've been fortunate enough to call Gil a friend for a long time. So you know, Gil, so pleased to have you on. And, and you know, given how busy you are with everything, glad to, to grab a few minutes of your time. But how did you go from someone who, you know, loved the game of golf and started playing as a kid uh, to someone who was a golf course designer and has designed some of the best courses in the world? When did you get your start in the game? Well, I think it was, uh, I mean, it was the, the key thing was my, my grandfather was, he was the only golfer in, in the family. And, um, you know, I, I pretty much idolized him uh, growing up. He was one of the kindest, nicest uh, people I've, I've ever been around and, and just seeing the way he treated people. He was a politician. He was the mayor of the village I grew up in for 28 years. Um, and, and just his people skills and how easily he, he you know, related to people, no matter what their background was. And so I just, everything about him was great. And the fact that he played golf made me love the game of golf. And he introduced me um getting out on a golf course is an old uh, A.W. Tillinghast golf course in on Long Island, Southward Ho Country Club. And I'm not sure if it was just the love of the game or love of being in that landscape with him um, made me realize how special golf courses were. And so it kind of opened my eyes to to that landscape, but not really understanding that somebody, you know, designed this or, or how it all got laid out. That That was something interesting that developed a little bit later and then i just started doodling golf holes i uh, went to university of denver as an undergrad and studied political science and history kind of preparing to follow in my grandfather's footsteps and that's one of those degrees that you know when you you get it it's like okay now what do you do um so you either go to law school or grad school and i was lucky that i uh, got into cornell and was studying city and regional planning and then was um to the point of taking a landscape architecture class. And I met a gentleman who was in the first, uh, his graduate program, trying to be a golf course architect. And I went home to Tracy and I said, this is it. You can actually do this. I, I didn't think there was a career path. And with her support, uh, switched into landscape architecture program right then and there. And I got my master's degree, met uh, Tom Doak had been there prior to me being at Cornell 
he won a scholarship called the William Frederick Dreer Award, which allowed a student from either landscape architecture or ornamental and horticulture and floriculture <laughs> departments to spend a year abroad studying, and Tom Doak applied it to golf course architecture, and uh, five years later, I did the exact same thing, got you know, the great opportunity to study all those wonderful courses over there, Lynx courses, Heathland courses, you name it, worked for Hawtrey and Son in their office. Um, prior to my going to, to Europe, I had been uh, on Tom Doak's crew at High Point, his first solo design, so I got to live the kind of construction grunt experience, being out in the dirt all the time and, and fell head over heels in love with that. I learned a ton at, at Hawtrey and Son, who was a much more traditional golf course architecture experience, you know, very detailed set of plans, allowing a contractor to build the golf course and then making site visits to check on things. But that summer in the dirt in Traverse City working for Tom was, you know, really opened my eyes to that whole design build thing. So from my grandfather on a great old Tillinghast golf course, uh, teach me about the game and, and what that landscape looked like to, you know, working in the Michigan dirt for Tom Doak and had three or four years working for him. And then 1993 started my own firm and, you know, we haven't looked back since. It's, it's truly a tremendous path because it took you really till that grad school level to realize, you know, that's what triggered that, that I can do this. I can make this uh, turn my passion uh, into my job. And you kind of lead a natural transition mentioning Tillinghast to, of course, Wingfoot, which opened in 1923 and A.W. Tillinghast gem, to say the least. And, you know, talking about your architecture philosophy is probably different than your restoration philosophy. Is that right? So you have to study not only what you think makes a good golf course, but what the greats considered a great golf course. And then you get kind of a, a, a daunting responsibility, I'm sure, in some sense of something like Wingfoot. So how do you transition from architect to restoration and take into consideration Tillinghast's original design? Well, I think part of everybody said, well, uh, you know, the undergrad degrees, well, were they helpful? Well, the history aspect of that was very helpful because I learned how to do research and, and I had a great appreciation for the history of whatever I was studying. And the, the political science aspect of it is, you know, club politics are about as complicated as any politics you can get involved with. So I think that that background has, has really put me in good stead in, in dealing with clubs and the political climates that exist there. And then being able to do the research for restoration. Uh, my partner, Jim Wagner, and I have always believed that it's it's incumbent upon us to really forget what we think about architecture and just jump headfirst into what did Tillinghast believe? What did he what did he practice? But not only what did he believe and what did he practice, what did he specifically do at Wingfoot? I mean, he was just such a an amazing architect and a bit of a chameleon. He went through all these different stages and different changes in the way he presented golf courses. So to say that, well, he did this at Bethpage or at San Francisco Golf Club, so that must have been what he was thinking here at Wingfoot. I, I find that's a trap that, that we've been very, very careful, trying not to fall into. Um, you know, and, and we're very lucky. We're working at some of the best golf courses in the world with great championship history. So you have a ton of archival material that we can go back to and look at. And at Wingfoot, one of the great things that, that we did, and with the help of you know, club historian Neil Regan, we were able to basically download all of these images onto an iPad. 
and we took the iPad out in the field. And if we're standing in the eighth fairway, I was like, okay, where roughly was this picture taken from? And what does the angle look like? And looking at aerial photographs. And it's now become a staple of everything we've done. I mean, we're currently working on restorations of the lower course at Baltus Roll and the south course at Oakland Hills. And we've got iPads loaded with all this photography. Now, 20 years ago, we couldn't have had the iPad, but it was, you know, it's really become a great tool for us. And so we mine the archives and we do everything we possibly can to figure out what did he do specifically, not typically. I think typically is one of the most dangerous words uh, in golf course architecture because Mm -hmm. that casts a really wide net over everything as opposed to specifically what did he do at Wingfoot because as I said, telling us was very different really very very um eclectic golf course architect well i think that makes sense because if you if you do everything as he would have generally done it all the tillinghouse courses would look the same based on the topography i'm sure there would be geographical differences but that makes a lot of sense that there were specific goals that tillinghouse had based on specific landscapes geographies and architecture you're absolutely right, and and I'm sure it'll it'll come up. And and in in 2020, it's not a politically correct statement, but you know he was asked uh, by the membership of Wingfoot to you know give us a man-sized course, and and that the the club when it was founded decided they wanted a serious test of golf. They wanted to have a a course that would challenge at the highest level, and and Tilling has certainly delivered it, and and he certainly you know with the it's become a little bit of a, a popular phrase right now but a second shot golf course and and while there's certainly a lot of strategy and a lot of intrigue in the tee shots at, at Wingfoot, and certainly when you've got uh, tight landing areas and thick rough it's really about the shots into the greens and the green complexes and having been involved in the in the rebuild of and preservation of the contours and expansion of the greens on all 36 holes at Wingfoot, um, for him to have had the creativity and the enthusiasm uh, to just keep producing such masterful works and beautiful pieces of art on these green complexes, 36 different iterations is really pretty impressive because you have to think it was both courses were built simultaneously in a very tight time frame, And you'd almost, you know, you'd hate to say it, but you almost feel like at some point you just got to mail in something and he didn't because every single one of those green complexes just got so much character in it and so much challenge. And I, you know, we're really excited to, to see the best players in the world, take them on. We feel like that, you know, we, we were very, very careful in making sure that we kept the contours, the internal contours, but where we expanded greens, we really tried to push them back out to the original parameters of what Tilling has built and how we could, blend those into the bunker edges and into the edges of the drop-offs because as you know they're all sort of elevated um, greens that sit up out of the landscape and we were able to find some of these images and i mentioned neil regan i mean he was just critical to to helping us get this back i mean nobody knows those greens as well as he does and some of his intuitions and his as just when he looked at something said it looks like it did this and we would dig down and kind of a little bit of an archaeological a dig and find that it matched exactly what he was saying. It was a little bit scary. We started calling him the Greens Whisperer out there. He was just, he really, he could just intuit what Tillinghast was doing on these greens. So having him as a resource was really very helpful. And I think, you know, the interesting things, and I, I'm guessing until you know, we'll hopefully bring up some of this, but, you know, where Jeff Ogilvy chipped, chipped in from on the 17th green in, in 2006, that 
he would he would be on the green now. Um, so that you know where it was rough during that U.S. Open Championship, it it will be green putting surface now. So that shot would not be able to materialize. It would have a completely different result when he hit that shot into the green. Yeah, really interesting, Gil. I mean, you talk about both courses at Wingfoot. You worked on the East Course as well. Both ranked in the top 100. But Wingfoot, Wingfoot's West Course, uh, this will now host its sixth U.S. Open. Goes all the way back to the 1929 U.S. Open won by Bob Jones. There's certainly a lot of storied history there and history of the best players in the world uh, winning the U.S. Open trophy there. Now, for those that that watched the 2006 U.S. Open, what are a few things that, that people will see this time around? You mentioned Ogilvy and his chip on 17, uh, but what will people see uh, or what should they look for that maybe they didn't see in 06 that they will see this year? Well, I think you know, the the bones of the golf course will hopefully, and, and the appearance of it will hopefully feel very familiar. Um, you know, that was our goal was to try and, and make the golf course look and feel as if traditionally as it always has it at Wingfoot. There'll be fewer trees on the property we went through, and, and primarily for agronomic reasons, remove some trees. Um, the bunkering is a little bit different, but not significantly. We we shifted a few bunkers downrange uh, to you know, to take on the modern player, because obviously in those 14 years, the game's changed uh, significantly. So we've had to, we've added a little bit of length, but I think the, the primary thing is going to be the green complexes. We were able to generate through expansion, some really interesting new hole locations. Uh, we were able to, and, and this is something that Neil Regan taught us about the greens there is that, you know, a lot of the areas that we recovered were not, there will be no hole locations there. You know, the slopes are too severe. They're just basically ridges or mounds that feed into the greens. But what what we talked about with Neil is that Tilling has to use these almost as bumpers, for lack of a better way to describe it. So you could almost putt to the edges of the greens to get putts to curl back to the center and, and basically take some of the speed off of them. And it's amazing how when you stand out there and putt with him, some of these, you know, hit way off to the side and they'll catch that slope and it'll t- it'll just dissipate enough energy and then let the ball start to trickle back in. And I think if players are those who are aware and kind of look around and can be creative with their putting, I think we'll find some really interesting, some interesting different ways to, to tackle those greens. The other part of it too, is that in recovery shots is the utilization of some of these slopes. If you're coming out of the rough, you can, you you can use some of these longer slopes to get a ball to run up and then release back down onto the green, as opposed to running up into what would have been rough. So I think a lot of the creativity and the putting and a lot of creativity and the shot making around the greens will be enhanced by, by these green expansions. And I'm fascinated to see if some of the players are, are, are creative enough to really think and look sort of away from the hole as they're approaching it, because Tilling has put all these great slopes that allow you to utilize them in a fashion that I think the only time we ever see that on TV is like as Augusta national has got mm-hmm. that, you know, the ability to see the guys aiming, you know, their backs almost turned towards the cup and then they, you know, the putt takes the slopes. And, and I think we will see more of that type of creativity at Wingfoot this go-round. Creativity is so much fun to watch in championship golf. And, and Gil, one one place I got to see a little bit of that creativity was one of our USGA championships last year. We had the U.S. Amateur uh, down at Pinehurst, uh, and the competitors got to play out on course number two. Uh, Donald Ross Jam, of course, uh, restored by uh, Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw a few years back. And then course number four as well, a course that – you recently redesigned. And the biggest thing I took away is that they love the courses 
But what especially caught my eye was was how much they enjoyed the cradle, a nine hole par three course right near the clubhouse. And you talk about creativity and in, in using to uh, having to to use slopes to to get shots close to the holes. You know, that was really fun to watch the competitors go out there, just take a wedge, take a putter, and have so much fun. You've called that one of your most successful designs. Why do you feel that way? Well, it's it, you mentioned the word. It's fun. Um, you know, it was liberating for Jim and I to be able to just build something based on fun. We weren't necessarily having to think about shot values. We weren't having to think about, well, what happens if somebody hits a ball over here and how do they recover, et cetera. It was really just let's try and – be imaginative and creative and create nine holes that are just super fun to play and that would capture the imagination the attention of a you know a, a touring pro and still allow somebody you know for the first time has ever picked up a golf club to go out there and have fun and and i think somehow we were able to figure out how to make that work on that little parcel of land and you know for for bob deadman and tom pashley at pinehurst to give us the front door of the the clubhouse and therefore the golf resort um, was really, we were so appreciative of that. And, and we're just, I mean, it does my heart good when I talk about successful, when you walk, you know, we were building course four and the cradle was open and I'd walk in at night and you'd see it just packed with all kinds of people. There'd be, you know, eight sums of buddies with barefoot walking around out there and the music's on and there'd be little kids playing and there'd be grandparents with their kids. And, and I mean, it just, it ran the full gamut. So I think from that standpoint, it, it was just so exciting for us to, to create something that was, that was based on fun and to see people just totally embrace it. And I mean, you can literally play every hole with a putter if you wanted to. So it's, it gives you that type of flexibility. And Piners, of course, will host the 2024 U.S. Open coming up in a few years. It'll be fun to see some of the best players in the world out there, hopefully with their families, having a little bit of fun before trying to win that championship. But, you know, Gil, I was just doing a little digging before this and saw a photo. that You actually made a hole in one out on Pinehurst number two, or excuse me, at the cradle at Pinehurst. So that must have been a pretty cool experience for you to make an ace on one of your uh, your designs there at the cradle. Uh, it was it was a blast, and I will have to say, I actually have two of them now on the cradle. I had another one uh, last fall. Now, my partner Jim Wagner says that they're just actually chip-ins. They're not really aces because the <laughs> holes are so short. <laughs> I would I know count I, it. I know I paid for the drinks, and the bill was pretty high, so I'm counting it as, <laughs> as a hole-in-one. Yeah, it was fun. It, the, you know, the, those sorts of things can happen. What The last one was on the the third hole, which is a punch bowl. So I never saw it go in, but I, I knew I hit it right where I wanted to. One of the guys in the group ran up to see it. And there were a bunch of people sitting behind the green, which we purposely put some chairs up there where people could watch that shot. And he, all of a sudden he started screaming and held people up on the hill. And so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. That place is a blast. And last year when we were at the amateur, the TV compound where I was parked for the week, uh, was right behind the cradle. Um, and, when I had to get to the course, I had to walk through the cradle and the amount of laughter and the, you talked about it, the music kind of playing through speakers right next to the U.S. amateur. I mean, it was so pure. It was such pure golf. And then I see two kids playing golf uh, and I'm like, wow, these these two kids have tremendous golf swings. They get closer and it turns out it was Michael Breed's two sons. So I think it made a lot of sense that they had two of the best uh, golf golf swings I had seen for kids that might be maybe 10 years old. Um, but it, it, it certainly leads us from what was a very fun project to 
really a question for you. How stressful was this project? And that was the Olympic course in Rio, again, that we saw back in 2016, uh, you know, built on a sand quarry, uh, played over 7,000 yards for the men, um, Inby Park and Justin Rose taking home the gold medals, respectively, in the 2016 Olympic Games. But Gil, uh, I know there were a couple features on the bidding process. Uh, I know that was stressful, but we'll kind of cut straight to the architecture. What was that like when you got the nod that this was your job? And was it humbling, stressful, both? A little bit of everything joyful. Um, you know, I think that, that Jim Wagner and, and Amy Alcott joined us on this project, and she was incredibly helpful with many aspects of it. But, you know, we'd, we'd always just believe just keep your head down and, and keep trying to do good work, and eventually somebody will, will pay attention. And, and I'm not sure we were ready for the, the attention that came with that, but um, it was something we were comfortable with because I think during the whole process we were true to what we believed architecture should be, what we believed the process should be. And I think ultimately what became the most frustrating and, and stressful part was that we were not allowed for a variety of reasons, which I really don't want to get into because I'll, my blood pressure will start going up again, um, is that you know we weren't allowed to build the golf course using the process that we'd used for so many years. Um, and just roadblock after roadblock kept getting thrown in our way, and we knew we weren't being efficient, and we knew we weren't being economical, and you know, and we were there. I mean, I've, you know, Tracy and, and our youngest daughter Kaylee were there with me for a long period of time, and and, and Neil Cameron and Kyle Franz and Ben Hillard, the three guys that were down there at the start, and then Ben Warren joined us. You know, we were all sitting there and trying to work and trying to do the right thing. And and oh, by the way, yeah, there was a, a due date. Um, it wasn't like we you know had unlimited amount of time. And so all of those factors kind of conspired to to create a really stressful situation. But that being said, um, you know, the two weeks of the Olympics were two weeks, obviously, we'll never, ever forget. And, and the results of of that and the the way the players received the golf course, the way it played, uh, I mean, it was, whether it was divine intervention or serendipity, I don't know, but it was, you know, the wind blew from all four directions. We had, you know, rain and sun, and we had different types of weather during the whole thing. We had... Um, you know, three male medalists who were all double digits under par. We had three female medalists who were all double digits under par. The winning score was exactly the same. Uh, we had <clears throat> arguably two of the best players in, in the world in NB Park and Justin Rose win. And we had six medals for six different countries. It, I mean, it, it really almost could not have played out any better during those two weeks. But but getting there was, was difficult. But that being said, it, it has we've obviously enjoyed a lot of opportunities and, and a significant bump in name recognition and from that. So it has, even though we, we went through an awful lot to get it done, it, it's had, you know, a multitude of rewards for us. And, and as I said, those two weeks, having the family there, it's strange because you guys know this with championship golf, when, when you're in town for a U.S. Open or the Masters or whatever, you know, it's the, it's the only game in town. It's the big thing. And with the Olympics, golf was one of 28 different competitions, and honestly, it was probably ranked in the 20s as far as public interest was concerned. So you had this tournament going on that we were also in, invested in, and then after it was over, it was like, well, what do we want to do tonight? You want to go watch swimming? You want to watch water polo? And there all these other things. And for the athletes, and it really is a shame, obviously, that the that, that summer's Olympics uh, has been postponed for a year because it would have been exciting to see golf and the momentum. And I'm sure there would have been 
a lot of conversation about the golf course in Rio and, and probably some more attention paid to it, which by the way, it is operating. It is completely fine. I mean, it's the only Olympic venue still functioning and, and doing what it's supposed to do. And it's spawning a really good amateur golf program in Rio and a good caddy program. So it's doing all of the things from a legacy perspective we had hoped it would do as well. Yeah, the legacy's there, the longevity, so it's not just a one-event golf course. I think that's really special. But one kind of final question from me on the Olympics is, I talked about the stressful moments. What gave you the most pride? Was that seeing the first, you know, tee ball go up in the air, or was it seeing the medals handed out? You know, I think one of the most prideful things for us was we we were all sitting right behind the 18th green and watching um, Henrik Stenson and Justin Rose play that final hole. And and the tact is a par five that the different strategies they used and and we all kind of after Justin hit his second shot and then Henrik hit his they were both in very different positions and we knew that Justin had studied the golf course and had um, figured out some of the different angles and for that whole location he was in a much better position to go at it than than Henrik was and the result turned out to be exactly that and. I think, you know, the excitement of the medals and the, the fact that it came down to the last hole and two of the best players in the world um, playing for that and that somehow, some way, the angle of the architecture really played into who wound up winning and who finished second. And I think all of us took a, a great amount of pride in, in seeing that be part of the end result. Um, and I think it was just the, yeah, the, the euphoria that, you know, our family, just watching my kids, and how excited they were and, and, and that finish, I think. And, and the one thing that we did do and, and somebody on golf channel just happened to catch it. And it was, you know, it's, I'm almost tearing up right now, but it was, um, you know, the, the night before the competition was supposed to start and we were out there with the guys that built the golf course and my family. And we just walked, we just walked the golf course. Everybody had gone in, all the practice rounds were over and it was a beautiful evening and we're walking down the fairway in the shadows. And one of the guys in the TV towers just happened to notice it and they filmed it. And so it's all the, you know, the most important people in my life with me on arguably the most important job of our lives. And, just enjoying the quiet and the solitude of that, you know, just it, that was as idyllic a moment as I think I'll ever experience in, in, in my life as it relates to the, the marriage of profession and family. And, and I consider the guys that, that work with me family. And, and so it was my real family and my extended family all enjoying that, that one sort of serene moment out there. You know, very, very powerful. I'm sure that that moment meant a lot to you. And I know you went through a lot as you talked about the process, not exactly what you wanted as far as constructing the course, but memories like that, you know, with your family, your actual family, your extended family who you work with, very, very powerful. I remember very well watching that, uh, the tournament, and I loved watching that short par 4 16 pole where some guys were trying to drive it up there, others laid up, but there were just so many different options you know, some some may call that the signature hole from the course. But one one question I want to follow up on is, you know, signature, the idea of a signature or a mark or a symbol that a lot of artists have or, or movie directors might have uh, in their in their films or in their pieces of work. Now, your canvas is a little bigger than a piece of art talking about hundreds of acres. But do you have anything like that in your design work that you stamp a course with, uh, whether it's the way a certain bunker looks or a tree or anything like that? Uh, that you do? 
Um, I've, I've said this in interviews and now it's become a little bit of a, a guessing game for guys that, that are, and women who go and play our golf courses, but on every golf course we've ever built, there's a, uh, a grouping of three somewhere. could be three bunkers, could be three islands in a bunker, could be three mounds, could be three, you know, different landforms, et cetera, et cetera. And those are, for my, are my three children. And, um, so there's always something out there that's got, and it's funny now there literally are guys and I won't ever tell anybody where they are. And, but if you guess it, I will, I'll say, yeah, you got it. And I get people sending me emails, <laughs> like, is it this, is it that, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had to get a little bit more creative and clever in, uh, in how we, we, we set those in there, but that little fun factoid aside, um, no, I think that Jim and I really, we actually, uh, hate that term signature hole. We, we feel like, you know, that that's such a subjective term. And if we somehow build a golf course and, and it's so obvious that there's this one hole that, that, you know, that's it, that's where all the photos get taken. That's then probably haven't done our job in making the other 17 holes as good as they can be. So I'd much rather, uh, we'd much rather build eight as, as good as we can build 18, you know, really good golf holes. And then if people want to somehow assign that, that, name that's that's fine but we don't ever really go out of our way to say oh wow this is going to be the signature hole in fact we joke a lot about about that um but i will have you say uh, we were very fortunate in that uh, after the olympics we the superintendent neil cleverly who did an amazing job getting that place ready um we asked him to grab some flags uh, from on the actual on the golf course and I asked him for the 16th hole. So that's uh, framed and, and hanging in my office and all the guys got, you know, flags that represented holes that they really had a good personal attachment to. I'm sure you have a lot of attachments to, to those individual holes, but you know, as you said, I think if you can go ahead and create a course, the 18 signature holes that, that are all very memorable for different reasons, then you've done a really, really good job. Um, but one thing, uh, you know, knowing from talking with you in the past is you like to get your hands dirty. you like to get, on an excavator, start, you know, put a shovel in the ground and, and start digging into the dirt, you know, doing all that excavating, doing that digging in your decades uh, as an architect, what are a couple of the coolest things you've found underground during the course of a project? Um, so the, the one that we're always on the outlook uh, or lookout for, sorry, is um, horseshoes. You know, we find, you know, because a lot of these old golf courses were built by, you know, mules and scrapers and horses pulling plows, et cetera, et cetera. So a horseshoe generally is, a, you know, we always think of that as a good luck symbol. So horseshoes are one, you, you'll find a ton of bottles um, and generally, you know, soft drink variety, not not alcohol. Um, although in Tillinghast <laughs> courses, you might find a few alcohol, alcohol bottles, bottles sprinkled around, but um you, you do tend to come across some of those. Some of the, the cooler things are, you know, the, the, the drainage systems, the clay tile pipes that they used back then and trying to figure out um, where those were located. One of our, my fondest memories was at Los Angeles Country Club on the North Course and um, trying to re, reposition or reclaim the second green, which had been covered over and the eighth green. Um, had been moved and and we had such a we had a really talented contractor with an excavator who just literally was peeling back soil layers until he found uh, where the old green used to be and and it it would appear that all they did was just cover it in dirt because there was this really thick black layer which probably would have been the grass 
and then uh, you could actually see cup holes still preserved like in amber underneath you know 20 feet of dirt on the sixth green and the second green and the eighth and so we were able to uncover and and like i said really talented very very careful uh, excavation and we basically as we were peeling that away we just found and kind of all right this must have been what the contour of the green was so um, in a way the worst job that whoever made the changes did in covering it up like if they just literally threw dirt on it it's so much easier for us to go back and find it if they did a really good job of filling in a bunker and took all the sand out and and really left a you know kind of clean did a very pristine job of removing that makes it much more difficult and we have to rely more on aerial photographs but yeah sometimes you you know if you're paying attention you 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 uh, we just had um, at Baltus Roll, they uncovered a carriage step. Like there was a step from an old carriage that was underneath. And um, so, yeah, it, it's fun. But you're right. You have to be on, on site. You have to be involved in, in, in the work. Kai Golby, who's working with us, is a very talented architect in his own right and shaper. has worked with us at Oakland Hills on the south course and went out there to do the expansion work on the greens, which can only really be done with a shovel and a rake. And he looked at me and he said, wait a second, you do that? Because I started shoveling and raking, and he was a kind of you know, quizzical look, like, "Yeah, I do." And it's as long as my body allows me to keep doing it, um, it's enjoyable, and and I think it's it's the level of detail that Jim and I have always talked about trying to to get into our projects. And and you, I, I always feel like you've got to lead by example. You never want to ask your guys to do something that you're not willing to do. I think that's that's really admirable and I think uh, the first time I was exposed to it was actually in a feature about the Olympic golf course seeing you in an excavator um, or a similar piece of equipment and I'm like oh he's not just drawing blueprints he's he's hands-on out there uh, and like you said hard to ask uh, folks to do something that you won't do yourself so certainly admirable and quite the scavenger hunt because I think it, it, it's a huge feat when I find an unscuffed golf ball in, in a foot of water um, but but you you have the keys to it to find much greater treasures and of course LACC Los Angeles Country Club, as you mentioned, the host of the 2023 U.S. Open coming up and, of course, hosted that 2017 Walker Cup where the USA team emerged victorious. And, and Gil, before we let you go, I wanted to, to switch gears a little bit because you're a man of many talents, one of which has now become on-air talent for Fox Sports, and that's where you and I actually first met. I mentioned the TV compound where I worked during championships, and that's where Gil and I have worked together. Um, and I always wanted to ask you this, and now I will since we have you, but you know, it's one thing for someone who played in 20 majors to come and analyze uh, the golf swing or the pressure that comes uh, with a with a major championship moment. But you're bringing something to viewers' homes that they may not know they're interested in. Um, you know, they may say, wow, that golf course is beautiful, but they don't know why it's beautiful. How have you taken what's very complex language and took you lots of years to learn? How do you make that palatable and digestible for a really broad audience that might be there just to see Brooks Kepka hit driver? Well, you know, it started out and, and, uh, you know, it's Mark Loomis, the, the producer for Fox golf has, you know, it was like his brainchild, just his idea to say, Hey, well, what, if, what other perspectives can we bring to, uh, the broadcast that might be interesting, that might be something different that other networks don't do. And so uh, he contacted me prior to 2015, and I said, sure. I, but the first time I was ever had the headphones on and heard Lumi in my ear, I was we were literally on air. So people were congratulating me for being so succinct, and I was just 
I was scared to death. <laughs> I was, you know, going to step on somebody else's lines or I was going to kind of stray out. So it, it became just get in and get out as, as quickly as you can with whatever seems to be a reasonable observation of what's happening. Obviously, I can't comment on the skill level or, you know, what it, or the pressure because uh, I've never done that. So I don't ever in, inject myself into a conversation about somebody's swing or what's going wrong or why he hit the shot to the right or et cetera. It was just really focused more on, okay, uh, Brad Faxon and Shane Bacon, who I've spent a lot of time working with on the broadcast, will provide that commentary. And then I might say, all right, well, the outcome of that shot now is that, you know, he's got, he's facing this dilemma that the architect or the, the maintenance of the golf course is presenting to him and, and really just try to add where I can uh, to that perspective. And then some of the studio, the feature work that, that I've been involved in is really, you know, especially early on, because one of the things that uh, Mark Loomis talks an awful lot about is the golf course is the story until Thursday morning. You know, people want to learn about winged foot and they want to learn about Aaron Hills or Shinnecock Hills or Oakmont. And so we need to give them as much content, but once balls are in the air and guys are playing, that's what the story is. Um, and so from that standpoint, we just need to add just background or, or context as to why that tee shot technically was fine, but it's, he's put himself in a bad position as it relates to the architecture and the design. And so I find it's, I actually really enjoy it. I've, I've gotten more comfortable with it. Now, you know, now, you know, the routine of what the week is going to be like and how everything works and where you need to be and, and, and what it's like to, to be on the broadcast and probably not nearly as nervous. Um, this year will be, it'll be the first time uh, we'll be doing commentary on a golf course that we've been very involved in. And part of what I've enjoyed thoroughly about the experience is that I get to do a really deep dive into Shinnecock Hills. We don't work there, so I don't really know that much about it. Learn about what William Flynn did. And last year, you know, getting to work at Pebble Beach and really trying to do a deep dive and study that golf course and the brilliance of it and, and all the things that go into it. And for me, that's that prep and homework is fascinating because I love those aspects of golf architecture and hopefully it, it allows me to add some things. But this year, uh, if I get something wrong, as far as, you know, what a green slope does or where, you know, what's the outcome of, of a certain shot, then I should, I, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble because I don't have to do nearly as much. We did our homework over, uh, four-year period while we were restoring both golf courses there. So, so hopefully I'll be able to continue to add some some interesting tidbits and and some thoughts from from a completely different perspective. Uh, something tells me you'll have your facts in order in September, Gil. But uh, <laughs> you know, thinking about the broadcast and maybe how it lends itself, and I think you alluded to it back to the architecture part of your work. You know, I'm always fascinated when I might go on a, a site survey for a championship with Mark Loomis and the Fox crew, and and Steve Byme, the director, and he's talking about well, the camera needs to be here because it needs to see into all four greenside bunkers. It needs this amount of height, and there's just things that you don't think about and then that's also helped me in kind of how I I picture golf courses in the game and how I play the game has has seeing how a producer like Mark Loomis or an announcer like Brad Faxon uh, or how the cameras show a course has that influenced what you've done in architecture at all um generally I mean most of the courses we work on are not going to have a, a championship of, of that caliber right. so I'm from our new course work it hasn't had a tremendous impact. Now, I will say we're, we're currently building a golf course in Frisco, Texas, that uh, for the PGA of America, their new headquarters, and that golf course has already been tapped to host 
multiple major championships, both uh, LPGA, senior PGA, and, and PGA championships. And we are thinking, I mean, we in the preparation, the run-up to designing and building that golf course, we spent almost as much time focused on the outside the ropes characteristics of all the requirements that go into a major championship and hosting it and moving stuff around and television compound and different angles. And so on that golf course, yes, it, it, it certainly has helped. And and with the, the championship courses that we restore, again, first and foremost, it's the original architecture. So we're hopeful we can provide good angles and, and good opportunities for, for Mark and Steve to, you know, maximize the beauty of the golf course and hopefully maximize the, the character of it architecturally. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's opened my eyes to just the, the scale of what goes into a broadcast of that magnitude and, and the hours and the, the dedication that the, you know, for whatever reason, I, and I didn't make up this term and it's, you know, the talent, that's what they call us. And, and I use that term very loosely <laughs> as it relates to me and, and, and broadcasting. You know, we kind of whisk in and whisk out and we're, we're chauffeured around and, and Fox does a great job of taking care of the talent. But, you know, every day when we leave, we see the people that are actually pulling cables and lugging equipment around and just the time. That, and they're always they're there before we get there and they're there after we get there. And, and they, you know, the, the time and the effort that goes into the broadcast of this is it's amazing. It really is. It's, it's very, very impressive. Yeah, Gil, it's amazing what goes into you know the, the back end that people never see, whether, as you mentioned, the people lugging the cable or all the advanced work that's done. It's incredible and a process that takes you know not just weeks, but months and in some cases even years for the U.S. Open. And now I just want to end by saying, you know, Gil, you've designed some of the you know most famous courses across the country, or had your handprint on some of them with either a renovation or a restoration. But one of my favorite courses that I've played of yours is actually a nine-hole putting course behind the USGA Museum. And for those who are in the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area, you can check it out at the USGA Museum, the Pines Putting Course, where visitors to the museum can use late 19th and early 20th century putters and golf balls to go out there. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes to play. And it's a lot of fun, inspired by, uh, what is it, Gil, the, the St. Andrews, uh, from St. Andrews, the Himalayas course? That is correct, yeah, yes. That is absolutely right. Yeah, it was um, something that that we were asked to do by the USGA. We were delighted to to be involved. And um, if I was smarter, we 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 obviously we for the good of the game and obviously for the organization, we we're happy to donate our services. But if I was smart, we probably would have taken a little piece of the action that I'm sure the USGA <laughs> staff has going on out there. On the there's probably a little fun uh, betting and some some good a uh, little good action out there and in. in amongst the the troops but well, it was it was a lot of fun i won't really pull, did enjoy it i won't pull back the curtain too far but i will say <laughs> that mr trosel over there has um really really beaten me badly with a 19th century putter <laughs> while i'm using the one i use all year um but he left that out Four. of his story which i kind of appreciate <laughs> we've maintained our amateur status though so nothing, uh, nothing <laughs> no, no. all for pride and i lost all my pride <laughs> 
Well, Gil, uh, thank you so much for taking a large chunk out of your day to join us. It's been so much fun talking about how you got into architecture and then some of the biggest projects you've had. Uh, and we can't wait to see Wingfoot on display in September. Um, and if you want to see the 2006 U.S. Open to study up on Wingfoot and then notice some of the changes that Gil had a hand in, you can visit our OTT product on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire. It's the USGA streaming app. So search USGA. USGA on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire. You can watch highlights from U.S. Open's past, including Wingfoot. You'll have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, so, Gil, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone at home, for Mike Trosel, I'm Dave Giancola. We'll talk to you next time.